Welcome to You Might Relate, a podcast where we take relationships and mental health to the next level. I am Stacy Heaps, a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been practicing therapy for the last 15 years. There are counseling concepts and stories that I am excited to share. When we know better, we do better. Together, let's get to a place of radical acceptance of where we are while improving relationships and tackling life's transitions, one therapy concept and one story at a time. So let's get started to see if you relate. Hello, welcome to You Might Relate. I am so happy that you're here today. Whatever you're doing, thanks for having me come along. Is anyone else singing the Wonka soundtrack? There's chocolate and there's chocolate. Oh my word. I loved and I love, love, love that soundtrack and the musical. The movie was fantastic. We are listening to it all the time at our house. Anyone else? So today's topic is an important one and it comes from visiting with many people who feel very isolated and also personal experience from having one of my children isolate themselves to the point where I just did not get it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what it meant. And now, being on the other side of it, I can see the effects that it had and what to do if you have a child or a loved one who does isolate. I also listened to the podcast about blue zones. Do you know about the blue zones? Blue zones are areas in our world where people live longer than the average person. It's Okinawa, Japan, Sardinia, Italy, and there's a peninsula in Costa Rica that I can't pronounce. And then there's another city in Greece that I can't pronounce. But anyway... The reason why they're called the blue zones is because the original survey by scientists, they used a blue pen on a map to mark the villages with long-lived population. And so the concept of blue zones having exceptional longevity, there's a lot of different reasons. It could be what they're eating. And in one case, it was what they're smoking, what their environment is like, and A lot of times, especially in Japan, it's because they do not just dismiss the elderly. They include the elderly into their everyday living. They are still valued members of society. They don't go live in rest homes. They are included in maybe the things that they could help doing, maybe some childcare, maybe some laundering, maybe... Anyway, they're not ever isolated They are still very much a valued part of society in some of those regions. My kids have got me listening to a few podcasts about the blue zones, and I find it fascinating. Anyway, so then that combined with some of the clients that I have that really suffer because they do live mostly in isolation, I just wanted to talk about it today. So imagine being confined to a small, dark room with no social interaction whatsoever for 30 days. Do you guys ever watch the reality show Survivor? I think that's now for 29 days. 
And even though they're not completely alone, they're not with their people. They're not with their family. And it can be very hard for them just not being around the people that they love and value the most, but they're around strangers. But anyway, so there's not very many people that jump on the opportunity to be isolated. But in November 2018, a professional U.S. poker player, Rich Alati, he bet $100,000 that he could survive 30 days alone in total, complete darkness. He was kept in a small, completely dark room with nothing but a bed, a fridge, and a bathroom. And even with all the resources he needed to survive, Alati couldn't last the month. But he did last 20 days. So, I mean, 20 days is remarkable. And after 20 days, he negotiated his release. He took a payout of $62,400. There are countless negative effects that social isolation and extreme isolation can have on our minds and bodies. Alati reported that he experienced a range of side effects, which included his sleep cycle and hallucinations. One of the reasons that living in isolation is difficult is because humans, we are just social creatures. Many people that have lived in isolated environments, such as the researchers that are stationed in Antarctica, they report that loneliness is the most difficult part of the job. And what about the show Alone? Have you watched that? Where they try to stay for 100 days and some of them are totally, they are survivalists. They can do it, just surviving. But the isolation part of it is what is the hardest part for them. They'll say, I just really want my family or my kids or my wife or my husband and that it's not that they can't survive. They've got plenty of food. They, they know how to do it, but it's that they're all alone. There's a Israeli adventurer named Yossi Ginsberg who survived weeks alone in the Amazon and said that loneliness was what he suffered from most and that he created imaginary friends to keep himself company. Loneliness can be damaging to our mental health and our physical health. People who are socially isolated are less able to deal with stressful situations, and they're also more likely to feel depressed and may have problems processing information. I have some friends whose spouses have passed away, and so they're not completely isolated, but just the talking things out, the problem solving that happens, you know, at the end of the day when oh yeah, let's make this decision or let's decide on this and you don't have your partner to help you even process information. So it is a lot harder to process if you don't have someone to do it with, right? So then obviously this leads to difficulties with decision-making and memory storage because how do we, we learn and we memorize by retelling things. And so if you're not retelling it, then you're not gonna have as much recall, right? So people who are lonely are also more susceptible to illness. Researchers found that a lonely person's immune system responds differently to fighting viruses, making them more likely to develop an illness. Impacts of social isolation become worse when people are placed in physically isolating environments. For example, obviously solitary confinement can have a negative psychological effect on the prisoners. That's why they do it. It increases their anxiety and increases their panic attacks and paranoia, and they're less able to think clearly. 
many prisoners report long-term mental health problems after being held in isolation. I'm talking more about people, maybe not that are necessarily held captive in a dark room, but people who isolate themselves in a dark room or live in a basement and don't come out or turn off other lights and they're, they're putting themselves in that place. It definitely will have an effect on someone's sleep cycle and hormones. You know, we rely on daylight to help us with our sleep cycle. And without that 24-hour circadian rhythm, it kind of can mess us up. And this explains why people who explore cave systems find that their sleep-wake cycle becomes disrupted. And this means that, or even ER doctors, you know, this means that the time they feel like going to sleep doesn't stay in a regular pattern and can shift each day. Disruption to our circadian rhythm can also make us feel depressed and fatigued even for truck drivers or people that have different work schedules that aren't your, you know, your typical nine to five if they're doing the night shift or something. This has also been linked to increased cancer risk and insulin resistance and heart disease as well as other physical problems such as obesity and premature aging. Well, yeah, because that just makes sense. If you are insulin resistant, then you're gonna crave the foods that you probably shouldn't be eating, which leads to all those problems. You know, people who are isolated, they can experience hallucinations. And the lack of stimuli causes people to misattribute internal thoughts and feelings as occurring in the outer environment. So you have lack of brain stimulation. And so you start to think that maybe people are thinking something that they're not thinking or doing something that they're not doing. So the good news about being in isolation if you're one of those people or if you know someone, is that it can be reversed. We need exposure to daylight and correct sleep-wake patterns, and it can take weeks or months, but it can be fully adjusted. So reconnecting with other humans obviously reduces loneliness, unless when you're reconnecting with the humans, they are mean to you, and then you feel more lonely than if you were by yourself. What is that song? One is the loneliest number unless there's two, and then you can feel lonely if there's two and the other person is not very nice to you. However, some people who have been held in social isolation against their will obviously develop long-term mental health conditions and PTSD. Some people who have faced the challenge of being alone for an extended period of time may show personal growth, emotional growth, or feeling closer to family and friends, having a better perspective on life, as a result of their experience. But that's more like I, one of my sisters did this. I think there's 10-day silent retreats at a monastery or something. And so those kind of things can cause growth instead of mental health conditions because it's not like you're completely isolated. You're around people. Just everyone's being quiet. Everyone's silent. But after 20 days willingly spent in total isolation, a lot of that poker players did say that he had a greater appreciation for people and life, better attention and focus, and overall feeling happier than before. But that was voluntary. So I know that there's always people who, for whatever reason, feel like they don't fit in. You know, mental health heavily influences our quality of life. So it makes sense that mental health, just like physical health, needs to be taken care of, and we have to maintain it. 
And one way that we can maintain our mental health is finding a sense of community. Community is all about connection. Community is not just an entity or group of people. It really is a feeling, feeling of being connected to others, feeling of being accepted for who you are and feeling supported. Having connection can help us feel wanted and loved. So the thing is, is you might think that you are in a community, but if you, so you are in a community and you're like, well, this person's in a community, but if they are not feeling loved and accepted, then actually they're not in that community. I mean, we are social beings. We are not meant to live in isolation. Community is critical for us to thrive, especially, especially for someone with mental illness who is already experiencing symptoms of loneliness and isolation due to them feeling like an outsider because they have this mental illness. Community provides elements that are critical to mental health. But here are the three most beneficial aspects. Belonging is the first one. If you've ever felt like you don't fit in, you know it can be a lonely experience. Community provides a sense of belonging, a group you identify as being a part of. Now, this is different than conforming to be in a group, right? You don't want to conform to be in a group. A true sense of belonging includes the ability for you to feel like you are a part of the community as your true self. There is nothing that you have to change in order to be a part of the community, but instead you are embraced and appreciated for your unique qualities. And this is why it is very hard for people with mental illnesses to belong in a community because They are a little different and people can be a little afraid. Or it is hard to belong in a community if you no longer believe in the faith of that community. Or you dress a little differently or you LGBTQ. I'm talking about when you don't have to change who you are, but the community embraces you. That's what we want. The next aspect that is very beneficial is support. Who do you turn to when you need something? Having people you can call on when you need to talk or need help with something to get you through difficult situations. If you don't have someone that you can turn to that might feel your problems and your challenges in life might feel insurmountable all by yourself. But knowing there are people who support you and can help you feel cared for and safe and are looking out for you, that are there to serve you, and you to serve them likewise, it is such a wonderful feeling. And when you're on the outskirts of that, there is no worse feeling. And so I'm going to talk about how we can support and or be supported even when you're on the outside. And then the next aspect of what community provides is purpose. In community, people fill different roles. Perhaps you're the friend who enjoys cooking and can be counted on to bring a hot meal over when someone is going through something difficult. Or you're the friend who others know they can call when they need to talk about their struggles. So these roles give you a sense of purpose through your helping other people, right? Having a purpose, knowing where your place is in that community gives a lot of meaning to life. 
this is why it would be so important to make sure that we're inclusive in whatever communities we're in to include the LGBTQ for their talents, especially in the arts. I, I know that's probably stereotyping, but I, I say it in the most positive way. We would not have the movies and the music that we have if it weren't for the LGBTQ on this earth. We need them. And think how much more fun even churches would be if we had the LGBTQ leading the choirs and and sharing their musical talents and and other talents with us. Also, thinking back to our elderly, they still have so much to offer the world with their wisdom, their experience, and they might not move as fast or even think as fast. Again, I'm stereotyping, but they have still so much to offer the world and to our families that can we find a place for them and include them? I have a brother and sister-in-law who, which I just, you know, my brother is my brother. And then his wife, I like to just say is my sister, but just so you don't get confused, she's my sister-in-law. They have adopted a couple in their neighborhood who, well, actually, so the husband did end up passing away, but she is now 101 years old. They adopted her and they found a place for her in their lives. and. Their kids have learned to do a lot of service through helping this couple. And now it's just this one single woman, these people to rely on and to count on. And they totally enrich her life and she she enriches their life. Also, she is also very difficult, but still, even with her difficulties, enriches their life. And it does give them meaning and purpose, both of them. So as for whether or not self-isolation is a form of depression, Someone struggling with depression can feel like an outcast and behave in ways to avoid social situations. And so when friends and family go along with it and in essence enable these self-isolating tendencies, they end up reinforcing their loved one's narrative that they don't belong or aren't good enough and that they're not good company and they don't have value and they don't have anything to offer. But when we on the other hand, say, you know what? You are actively avoiding social contact. And I think you're either scared or feel disconnected or misunderstood or alienated, or you're avoid enjoying things that you used to participate in. And I see that you're suffering and I see that each day gets harder and harder. It's time to do something different. If you're on the outside watching a family member or someone in your neighborhood go through this, want you to reach out. We want you to not allow that physical and emotional cycle of isolation to progress any further. Because the further it goes, it intensifies. The, the withdrawing intensifies the brain's stress response, leading to even more psychological and emotional issues. So it is so important that we just be good stewards to our neighbors, to our family. If you are noticing that your child is self-isolating or a parent is self-isolating or a neighbor is self-isolating, do not let them continue to self-isolate. And I know that you'll, you're going to, I hear the, I hear the pushback saying, well, they, you can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped. But I'm telling you, and you, and of course, you can't be forceful and 
physically move them, but you can turn on the lights and you can say, let's go for a walk and we're getting out of bed. And if it's your home and you're the parent, you definitely have more rights because it is your home. And we just have to kind of push and maybe help them get to the doctor and let's check your hormones and let's check what's your dopamine levels and and let's get, we can figure this out. You don't need to isolate. You are a valuable member of our community and we're going to help you with what we can help you with. Let's figure it out together. I do want to say here at this point though, that I do get parents who bring their teenagers in when teenagers are just being teenagers or teenagers are more introverted and the parent is more extroverted. So They'll bring their teen in and say, no, they're spending a lot of time in their room and they're not coming out, but they are still going to school and they still have a friend group and they still are involved in their sports, but they are spending time in their room. And sometimes introverted people just need a little downtime and they need a little less stimuli and they need to just recharge their battery. That's not the same as isolation. So don't get those two confused. When you are the person who does find themselves on the outside and you're looking like, how do I find community? You have to start with some self-reflection. Being aware of what's important to you can help you find ways to connect with other like-minded people. So what do you like to do? What are your interests? Maybe you enjoy reading, joining a book club, if you always wanted to try soccer, pickleball has been just the best way for a lot of people to have community because once you're in pickleball, everyone wants your number because if they need, they're playing Queen's Court or something, they need that extra 12th person, you're going to be called. Really, the possibilities are endless. There's political things that you can get involved in. There's neighborhood, there's HOA. There's a million churches around here that are always looking for service. There, You can get on I mean, Google service opportunities and you'll find community there. Values, what are your values? This could include charities or like I said, volunteer work. Being of service is so rewarding and that you would find people who have similar values or and care about what you care about, care about the same causes that you do. That's a big part of building your community and a connection. Volunteer work is such a great way to start. And beliefs, what do you believe in? If you connect with a spiritual practice or a religion, you can try going to a speaking engagement or an introductory course or class or service. Or if a political cause speaks to you, you can join a group that works toward a goal that's meaningful to you. Just connecting with something bigger than yourself is a really good way to broaden your community. We as humans crave connection and And if you're telling me I do not crave connection, you are wrong. I am going to say that maybe you have connection fatigue, but you still need connection. And so then you need to connect on a meaningful level and not on an unmeaningful level. When we feel accepted for who we truly are, that gives us validation and self-worth. And knowing there are people who support us and will be there for us when we're struggling provides such a great sense of safety. And knowing you're needed and that you have purpose reminds you that you are valued. 
community can provide all these qualities. And that is one of the reasons why religion is such a great community. So religion can be a really positive thing and it can be a really negative thing because if you fit the mold for the religion and you can find all these things, self-worth, validation, sense of security and purpose and need, I mean, it is the best thing ever. But if you find yourself outside of that, then it can be a real struggle. So I encourage you to just notice if you are in a religion, what of those things do you need and value and like and appreciate? And then look outside and see if there's others that could use that same thing that you have. And if you find yourself outside of a religion, notice when you did belong to that religion, what you miss and can you Of course, you can never duplicate exactly what you had within it, but what are the things that you can build and do outside of it using those things that I just talked about, interests, values, and beliefs, knowing that we do crave connection and we need it. So we don't want to deny that part of one of the great things about religion is that community. There's no denying that except for if you find yourself on the outside and feel more isolated, right? It's your job if you leave that community. You get to find your community. It's up to you. And there is no one size fits all. And if you haven't found a strong sense of community yet, keep trying. No matter if your community is big or small, finding people you connect with is vital, vital for your mental health. It is just important for you to find your community, and it's also important for others to have you as part of their community. We all need each other. Sometimes consulting a therapist can address the cycle of depression and self-isolation. So if you find yourself on the outside and you're not sure how to stop being depressed and self-isolating, go and see a professional. It takes away the fear that you'll be judged. Professionals are trained to not judge. They are a blank slate. They are there to listen. They are there to provide really a sounding board for you. Another reason is that they're impartial. They're an objective person. They're not, they not going to take sides. The therapist is there to help you live a happy and fulfilling life. And you're investing in that person and in yourself when you go to therapy. And you're able to explore your thoughts and your feelings and your behaviors and your environment and how they all contribute to your mood and worldview, you can find that you are not alone. There are so many people that share similar experiences and worldviews as you do. Now, if you find yourself having a kid with a disability, you want to find your community if you find yourself having cancer, you want to find community. You, so not only do you want your typical community, your everyday community, your family and friends or your chosen family and friends that you rely on, that you can support, that you can call, you also need to have people that are there for you with your particular challenge that you've been given. So for widows, there's a widow's support group. For parents who have LGBTQ teens, there's that group. For cancer survivors, there's that group. And in my case, for parents who have a kid with disabilities or Down syndrome, there's that group. There's so many groups that 
are so valuable that will help you get community in the places that you need to have community. Well, obviously you probably know this, but how do you know if a family member needs help? Well, if they withdraw from people, if there's any withdrawing, that is a typical sign of depression. And it's also very risky. Almost immediately, being isolated deepens a depressed mood and triggers loneliness and sadness. But studies have found that social isolation increases the risk of health problems to the same degree as having an alcohol or disorder or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So isolation is even worse for physical health than being obese. You know, like a friend who spends a day in bed but gets back to work the next day or calls you that night to talk, that's fine. That's normal. But when you see someone consistently and repeatedly refusing to leave the house, canceling plans, not answering their phone calls or texts, that's when you got to be worried, right? So if you have a loved one who is showing signs of becoming significantly socially withdrawn, do not just stand by and let that happen. Do what you can to engage that family or friend and reach out to them, push them to get the needed treatment. It is not easy to approach someone and talk about their depression or why they are socially isolating, but it is important to do so. Do not be an enabler and just allow them to do that. It is uncomfortable, but guess what? The more comfortable we get with being uncomfortable is our superpower. And so here's this person, they're socially isolating because they don't feel comfortable being out in public. And so then you're going to say, well, I don't feel comfortable approaching them. So now, now you're disenabling. If you want to show them that they can do hard things and you do the hard thing and you be uncomfortable approaching them. And I don't mean confront in a, you better get out of bed and you better do this. I'm saying, tell me what's going on. I'm here for you. I'm going to be right by you today. I'm not going to let you be in this dark basement by yourself. And if you aren't sure what to say, that's okay. You just be a good listener or you just be with them. Tell your friend or family member that you're concerned and that you just want to listen and help them. And sometimes just having someone express that they care and are worried is so powerful. And they understand that you're not there to fix it or to tell them what to do. You are literally there just to listen and be compassionate and not judgmental. And then keep going back and checking in. Someone who is withdrawn is probably not going to come to you. So you need to keep going to them. And you want to try to get them out of the house. Getting out of the house can make a huge difference with someone who is struggling. And it may take some pushing and prodding to make it happen. But... Making plans to pick your friend up or your family member up to go and do something easy and low pressure, go getting a drink or taking a walk or going on a short hike, going to feed the ducks, something like that, going to the zoo if you have a zoo. But you don't want to force them to be around too many people or to do too much. Something with a lot of stimuli like a party or a loud restaurant, that's overwhelming. But just simple, easy, quiet, something in their safe zone to start engaging you know, even if it's just with one person, that little tiny bit of activity and interaction can help lift some of the feelings of depression and loneliness. And I know that a lot of times people who are isolating are shutting you out and they're closing the door. They are saying they don't want interaction. You just got to keep trying. 
even saying no to you is still interaction and that's important. Our brain is just trained to favor familiarity. When we're born, our brain is completely malleable and it, it is experiencing new things all the time. We're figuring out positive and negative behaviors, what is good for survival and avoiding consequences that would cause even short-term pain. And as we age, our brain learns ways to do things that make us do certain things and behave to getting a reward. So essentially, our brains learn what works and what doesn't work early on. And that is great on one hand because it means we don't have to keep relearning positive behaviors. But the downside is that the brain gets used to doing certain things in a certain way so that over time, when we introduce new behavior modes, it, be, it can become challenging. So this brain has established a lot of pathways. And the more you do something, the more ingrained it becomes in the neuropathway much like how a computer stores the sites you visit. And so then when you log onto your browser, they pop up because you use them a lot. Well, change is an upheaval of many things and the brain has a lot to work to fit in to the existing framework. Since our brain is so protective of us, when we introduce change, change of routine or change something changes in our lives or change in someone visiting us or talking to us, our brain is also on guard and ready to pounce immediately because it is watching out for any threats, right? But I'm saying that if you have someone who is isolating and then you continue to offer change, even the thought of doing that change is creating a different neural pathway, which is really healthy for that person. I know it can be a struggle to make those changes, but we can and should teach our brain to change. When we do this, it's like taking our brain to the gym. And yeah, when we go to the gym, sometimes we get frustrated because it just doesn't seem like it's working or it's really too hard and we resist things and oh my gosh, I'm so tired, but that's what we got to do to do to get change out of our body and that's what we have to do to get change out of our brain. So I know there are our elderly and our teens sometimes get stuck in, and, and who am I kidding? It's even middle-aged. We get kind of stuck in our way of thinking and, and doing things. And so if you're isolating or if you know someone who is isolating, creating change, even the thought of doing something different will be scary at first, but then continuing with that idea or offering new ideas offering different ways to offer the new idea is essential to get people out of a rut. And obviously any drinking or drug use for someone who is isolating is absolutely going to be even worse for them. If you have someone who typically isolates and then you're like, let's go have some drinks of alcohol, do not do that. That is a depressant and that'll worsen their isolation stage. So do something clean and uplifting that's not a depressant. Healthy activities, do something that's healthy for them. And sometimes a residential treatment center is what they need. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. It can be a really positive thing. Again, that would be something that would be out of their comfort zone and completely different because they're not used to the regimen and the routine that a residential treatment center would have. So a lot of times people think that residential treatment centers are only for people 
using a substance or abusing a substance, but it can really be for people who are depressed and anxious or have OCD. And going into residential treatment centers, they relearn positive behaviors. So there are some really positive things and it's doing something different. It's getting out of your comfort zone. And so I would encourage that if you're in it really deep. Anyway, this podcast episode today is just about how important community is, the effects that non-community has on our brains and our psyches, and how dangerous it can be, and really to watch out for our loved ones and our neighbors for that, and to understand that, you know, in our different groups that we have, be they religious, family, political, social, to look out for those who might be isolating and reach out and not let them get too far into it. And so we will talk more on mental health next time. And until then, I hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for joining me today on You Might Relate. I hope this topic brought understanding and insight. And if you can relate to something in today's episode, subscribe and leave a review. I would love, love, love to hear your thoughts. Also, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at You Might Relate Podcast. And be sure to share this episode with your friends. The more understanding we create, the better we are as humans. You are in charge of your day, so go make it a good one. Catch you next time.